Okay, Mark chapter 11, that's where we're going to be picking up this morning. And uh, if you guys are new here, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are about 42 messages into this. We've been going at this for quite some time now, almost a year. Uh, we're going to continue to go through this all the way to the very end. But we're kind of at sort of the latter part of Jesus' life now. Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. This is where all the action in Jesus' life takes place. I mean, Jesus has obviously lived a life full of a lot of action up to this point, a lot of great things that Jesus has done. But this is really where the main action takes place in Jesus' life, meaning Jesus will confront the religious leaders, as we saw last week, they're on the Temple Mount. Jesus is going to ultimately be arrested by these religious leaders. Jesus will be crucified, he'll be tried under Pontius Pilate, he will be put to death. Ultimately, the good news is Jesus will be risen again from the dead. So that all of this is going to be taking place over the next several weeks to months as we finish up the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be taking a look at here a passage that we actually started last week, and I'll kind of recap it in a moment here, but I'm going to pick it up in around verse 20, and we'll read the little story, and uh, then I'll begin to kind of hopefully uh, unpack it for you guys so it'll begin to make sense. But it's a story of which we started last week, where Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. He walks by this uh, tree. He curses this tree. Um, I'll explain what that means in a second. It wasn't that Jesus just had something against trees, and he talked to trees. Uh, it'll make some sense to you in a moment. And then he goes up onto the Temple Mount, and he begins to drive out the money changers. It's typically identified as either Jesus is cleansing the temple, or you can look at it as Jesus judging the temple, whichever way I think they're both kind of the same idea. Um, and finally, what we see today is Jesus comes back to the tree. His disciples notice that this tree is withered. It's dead, in other words. And they're tripping out. They're like, this is amazing. What happened here? Why did this take place? And then what Jesus does is uses this tree that's died as an object lesson to his disciples, as Jesus was accustomed to doing oftentimes in using circumstances or actions. And then later he would begin to use sayings. And from actions to sayings, Jesus would then use these as object lessons to begin to talk to his disciples really about the gospel, what it meant for him to create a brand new people that are living after his kingdom. So verse 20, we'll pick it up right here. He says this, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And then Jesus answered them, and he said, have faith in God. Truly I say to you that whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, cast into the sea, but does not doubt in his heart, but believes uh, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. One of the things that we've been saying from the very beginning, continue to say because it's, I think it's essential, is that when we approach the Bible, and especially the story of Jesus for example, in the Gospel of Mark or any of the other Gospel accounts, we have to approach the Bible stripped free from our preconceived notions about who we think God is or what we think God should be like. Here's the problem. What typically takes place is we have an idea in our mind as to who God is and what God is like, and we typically take elements of Jesus, for example, that we particularly like and other parts of Jesus that are confusing to us or difficult to swallow or straight up frustrating, we usually throw those away and we kind of create sort of a fabricated or an edited version of Jesus. The problem with that is, is that this Jesus is a Jesus that you made. In other words, he doesn't exist except for in your imagination. 
problem with that is, is that you can go on living your entire life thinking that this Jesus is a nice Jesus that gives nice moral statements, nice little pithy ideas that he comes along and helps you along with your life. So when you're troubled, having a difficult time, this little Jesus will pick you up like he picks up little lambs, straddles them, takes care of them, nurses you back to health, and you go on with your life. The problem is, is that when you strike real difficulties and hardships, things that actually demand miraculous intervention, that Jesus that you made is impotent. He has no power. The reason why he has no power is because he doesn't exist. He's fake. He doesn't, he's not real. He can't help you. So in life's real circumstances, in life's real difficulties, a Jesus that you made cannot help you. He's a worthless, false Jesus. So what, the only way that we can counteract that is by coming to the Gospels, coming to the Bible, and letting the Bible speak to us who Jesus is, what he's like, all of the things that we love about Jesus, and all of the things that confuse us about Jesus. We have to take them. We have to take them as a whole. That doesn't mean that we fully comprehend Jesus. See, this is part of the problem that's taking place in our culture, uh, in this westernized world, in which we have this idea that we think that we actually can somehow conquer things by learning lots of things. And so we have this idea that I want a God that I can wrap my mind around, that I can understand. The problem is, is a God that you can fully understand, again, we go back to the same problem. He's not a real God. A God that doesn't have transcendence, a God that doesn't have mystery, a God that doesn't leave you in some ways in awe of ways in which he does things, and you just don't simply understand, a, a God that can't short-circuit your thought processes isn't worthy of worship. He's, he's, he's nothing more than a, a comic. He's nothing more than a caricature. And he can't save you, he can't help you. So what we've been trying to do as we go through the Gospel of Mark is let Mark tell us who Jesus is, and as best as we can, as honest as we can, let this Jesus that Mark tells us about Begin what shapes, transforms, challenge, maybe even contradict our assumptions about who Jesus is. Because only that Jesus can save you. A God that can't contradict you, a God that can't challenge you, a God that can't somehow come to you and tell you you're wrong is a worthless God. He won't help you. You need a God that can challenge you. You need a God that can contradict you. You need a God that can come to you and tell you areas that you're wrong so that you can change, so that you can be transformed. And this is the God that the Bible tells us about, that he is a God that's bigger than us. He's beyond us. There's things that he does that we don't always understand. There's ways in which he works, the ways in which he works uh, that we will never fully comprehend and understand. But the reality is, is that this God that Mark wants for us to understand and see as powerful he also wants us to understand that he's also loving. That he's not just simply this mere powerful force that exists in the universe like a quasar, but he's a God that is not only powerful, but he's also a God who's like a dad who loves us. He actually has good intentions for us. And that's the point that Mark wants us to really wrestle with and deal with and understand. So with that, we're going to take a look at in this story that Jesus' disciples, when they follow Jesus back to the region of the Temple Mount, and they notice that this tree has been cursed or is dead now. They're tripping out. 
They're like, what happened here? This is amazing. Just yesterday, Jesus looks at this tree, curses it, and it's gone, and now it's dead. What happened here? So they're amazed by the power of Jesus. But what I want to take a look at here today, basically jumping off from the concept of the power that Jesus reveals, there's three things that I think become a little bit clear in this text. One, we're going to take a look at, first and foremost, very quickly, the idea of the power that Jesus puts on display. So where Jesus, all up until this point, has been putting on display his power. The second thing we'll take a look at is the power that Jesus then entrusts to his disciples. Because what we're going to see here in the past is that Jesus actually tells his disciples, if you pray, you can move mountains. That's power. I mean, think about it. That's absolutely amazing power. And Jesus says, you can tap into that. And the third thing we're going to really try to wrap our minds around and spend some time on is really trying to understand the way in which this power is released. How does Jesus give us his power? How does he entrust it to us? How does it come to reality in our lives? So the first of which is I want to take a look at the power that Jesus puts on display. So let me just try to give you a very, very brief recap of the entire Gospel Mark. Up until this point, what we've seen of Jesus from the very beginning is a Jesus that's very powerful. So every single time you see a miracle, Jesus casting out a demon, that's power put on display over demonic, unseen forces. Every time Jesus, you know, heals a limb, that's Jesus putting on a display of power over decapitating diseases. Every time Jesus multiplies, you know, loaves of food and fish uh, to feed 5,000 or 4,000 people, that's Jesus demonstrating unlimited power over food and over nature. Every time Jesus is on a sea and he speaks to a storm, and obviously there's one occasion where Jesus in the Gospel of Mark looks at a hurricane, yells at the hurricane, and the hurricane stops. I mean, immediately just dies down. This is Jesus in this raw power speaking to a storm, and the storm stops. Mark, up until this point, wants us to stand in awe, to be amazed at the raw power of Jesus. And so we need to, first of all, just recognize. And this is what happens here. Jesus comes to the, uh, comes to the Temple Mount, speaks to this tree, and the tree withers. We'll get more to that in just a second here as to why Jesus does this. So again, Jesus speaks to this tree, and then Peter comes back, and he says, Rabbi or teacher, this fig tree that you cursed has withered. All right? The second thing I want to take a look at is this, is the power that Jesus then entrusts. Because then Jesus then speaks to his disciples, and he basically says, I'm going to give you this power, the power that, uh, that, you've, that you've seen, that you've watched happen. Now, what that means, I don't think, first of all, I should say what it doesn't mean I don't think what Jesus is saying is that you too can have power to curse fig trees. Like, I don't think that's at all what Jesus is saying. And I'll, and I'll get to an example why that's not at all what Jesus is implying or what he's speaking. Because first of all, Jesus, when he's approached by Peter, and he, Peter's like there's in awe. He's like, I can't believe, look at what happened. He just spoke to this fig tree yesterday. Now, real quick, we talk, let's talk about the, the idea of a curse. Um, depending upon your background, the way you think of a curse, you can think of a curse as like something from Harry Potter like an incantation, that's not at all what Jesus is doing, all right? Jesus is not magical. He's not whipping out like black magic or white magic. He's not magical. All that Jesus was doing was he notices that a tree that should be bearing fruit isn't bearing fruit, and Jesus speaks to the tree, says, don't bear any more fruit. Just die, and it died, all right? That is the idea of a curse. In other words, it's a word that's pronounced against something. 
Not that it necessarily has any magical power, uh, not that we can go out and you know, create incantations and somehow have the idea, but this is sort of the notion, the idea that Jesus does. It's described as a curse. But then Jesus is approached, like I said, by Peter, and he's amazed as to what Jesus has just simply done. And then basically Peter turns to Jesus and he says, you know, what happened? Here? How did this take place? He's like amazed that this has taken place. And then Jesus turns to Peter and he basically says one simple word or phrase to Peter. He says, have faith in God. To be quite frank with you, in some ways, this is kind of confusing to me, to be honest with you. As I read this, I'm like, Peter comes to Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, this is amazing. You spoke to this tree yesterday, and today it's dead. What happened? And Jesus says, have faith in God. What does that mean? Like, what does that mean? What, I think what this means, and I, and I want to try to give you my best understanding, my best interpretation. Again, like anything I say, you need to take back to Scripture. If it's wrong, check it, and it's fine. Uh, but the point of the matter is, let the Scripture be the final word. But here's my best attempt of trying to describe what I think is happening. Okay? What we need to understand is that everything that Jesus says, everything that Jesus does in his ministry pulls from a vocabulary steeped in the Old Testament. Let me give an example. Everything that Jesus teaches on, says, speaks about, to some degree is radically steeped and radically filled with Old Testament metaphors and idioms and allusions. All right? Now, for most of us, unless... Some of you are like Old Testament scholars. Any Old Testament scholars that have memorized the ancient Hebrew? That's what I thought. The point of the matter is this. Most of us would be completely unfamiliar with the various types of metaphors and idioms that Jesus is talking about. In other words, we hear Jesus walk by a tree, all right? And he's like, like, there's no fruit on this tree. He's like, curse you, fig tree. And he walks by. And we're like, wow, Jesus is grumpy. What's his problem? He's yelling at trees now. Like, he goes from healing limbs to yelling at trees. He's losing it. But the disciples would have known exactly what Jesus was doing. Here's why. As I said last week, a fig tree all throughout Israel's history was always a metaphor of the nation of Israel, just like a vine was a metaphor of the people of Israel. And so when Jesus speaks to this fig tree, he's basically speaking to Israel. It's his way of basically using this fig tree as an idiom or a living parable. And what Jesus, by doing this, going up to the tree, he says to the tree and essentially says what he says to it. He's demonstrating, giving to the disciples a picture of power that he's giving to them. And this is one of the reasons why I think Jesus simply answers Peter by saying, have faith in God. Now, how does that fit? All right. If, for example, the fig tree is symbolic of Israel, then what that means is simply this. When Jesus walks to the fig tree... A fig tree is good for one purpose, fruit, right? If a fig tree doesn't bear fruit, or if a garden that you plant doesn't bear any vegetables, it's just simply a waste of time, energy, money, water, and water bills, right? And at some point, you begin to just realize this thing's worthless. It's not doing what it's created to do. And the energy that I poured into this thing is not being given back to me. And so the point of the matter is that what Jesus is saying, in essence, is that Israel has become a fruitless tree, God created Israel so that Israel would be a nation that bore fruit. God designed Israel so that as Israel walked in relationship with God, Israel would have fellowship, relationship with God. And as Israel had fellowship and relationship with God, they would bear fruit to the nations. Other nations would be able to feast off of Israel's abundance, and they would be blessed. 
they would meet God because every time they would wonder, how is Israel so fruitful? Israel couldn't take credit for themselves. They would have to say, because we're connected to the vine. God is our source of life. God gives us everything that we have, everything that we know, the very words that we live by, the law that guides us, the law that governs us. Everything that we have comes from our gracious God. And the point is that God designed for Israel to be like a city set upon a hilltop so that every other city, every other nation that's in darkness can look up to this bright, brilliant, shining, lit city on a hilltop and find hope. But the problem is, is that Israel, rather than being a light, hid its light. That Israel, rather than being a fruit-bearing nation that blesses all other nations of the earth around them, pointing them back to their creator God, became barren. Israel, that was intended by God to be part of the solution, became part of the problem. And now all that remained was this metaphor, this picture of a fig tree has lots of leaves but no fruit, was this picture of Israel that had lots of religious activity, lots of leaves, but no fruit. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, have faith in God. Again, why? It seems kind of cryptic. Why would Jesus say, have faith in God? It seems like dodging the question, like what's, what's Jesus even doing by saying that? Here's what I think Jesus is trying to say. Peter, James, John, the rest of my disciples, Israel is faithless. And as a result of their faithlessness, they become barren. As a result of becoming barren, they've completely fallen out of sync and out of relationship with how God designed for them to be. And the way to combat that, the way to stop being fruitless, is to have faith in God. Let me put it best the way I think a preacher by the name of G. Campbell Morgan put it. He said it well. He said this, faith is the principle of fruitfulness. When faith perishes, the principle of life perishes, and the possibility of fruitfulness passes away. Fruit was not found in the nation because life had departed. Life had departed because faith in God had departed. I totally agree with that. I think he nailed it. That's the point. Israel stopped being a nation that depended, in God, depended on God, trusted in God, loved God. They wandered away. They fell away from God. They slipped into alternative things that they were trusting in. I think probably, I kind of went into this a little bit further last week, I think Israel as a whole, led by its leaders, made an idol out of the temple. They worshipped, in a sense, the temple. The temple became what identified Israel for who they were. Rather than a temple being the means that led them to God, the temple became this thing that they would fight for, became a symbol of their power, became a symbol of their identity as to who they were. Their identity was the temple. Their power was in the temple. And as a result of that, when Jesus comes on the scene, he's like, look, the better temple has arrived. The place where your sins get taken care of, I'm here now. The place where you meet with God, I'm here now. And they're like, we don't like you, Jesus, and you're attacking our God, our idol, and we're going to kill you. Because that's what people do whenever their idols are ever threatened. Anytime we have things that we worship that are other than God, one of the best ways to identify those things are how do you act when those things are threatened. When they're threatened, you freak out. When they're threatened, you become full of anxiety. When they're threatened, you might even become violent. That's a very good indication of the fact that you are actually, even though in words you may be saying, I worship God, in action you're actually worshiping something else. That is your true source of comfort. That is your true source of life. So what had happened was Israel became a faithless nation. They stopped trusting God. 
And so what Jesus, I think, basically saying is, again, from the fruit tree, when Jesus cursed the fruit tree, the very latter part of the day, Jesus then goes into the temple, and he judges the temple. He cleanses the temple. And then what does he say to the temple leaders? He basically rebukes them by saying, this temple, this house, was intended to be a house of prayer for all the nations. That means Gentile nations, non-Jews. That means Egyptians, Babylonians, Philistines. You're like, I thought all those guys were like Jews' enemies. Exactly. It was to be a place where all of Israel's former enemies can come meet Israel's God. Here's what happened. Jesus says, you've turned this place into a den of thieves. Rather than being a place of welcome, it's become a place of exclusion. Rather than being a place that leads people, drives people, demonstrates the greatness and the power of God. It's become a place that demonstrates how far God is from everybody and that God doesn't want to be in relationship with them because that's the picture that the people of Israel portrayed to the rest of the world around them. So rather than being a place that drove people to prayer from all the nations, it became a place that separated people from God. And Jesus says to Peter, James, John, his disciples, the way to deal with fruitless trees, and prayerless temples is you have faith in God. Look, the reality is this. This is the history of the church. This might even be the history of your life. Because maybe at some point, like you had an experience with Jesus. You might have met God at some point at a younger age in life. For me, I was 15 going on 16 when I met Jesus. For some of you, it might have been in your teens, later teens, whatever. Some of you maybe moved away to college. That's where you met Jesus. But some of you, over the years, you kind of drifted off. You started off, you were all excited, pumped out about, pumped up about Jesus. Do you love God with all your heart? At some point, things sort of started driving you away from God. And rather than driving into God, pressing into God, you drove away, you drove away from God. Rather than trusting God, rather than loving God, you began to trust other things. And sort of you've walked away, you've fallen away from relationship with God. You've, even though you might have become busy. And so typically there's two paths that oftentimes people can go. One is a path where they just enter into like straight up sin. And these people are really easily identifiable because they're like, those, those become the people that oftentimes in little church groups that become like the focus of topics of gossip. Like, oh yeah, did you hear about that guy? He's like smoking weed now. Like, oh my gosh, let's pray for him. You're just gossiping. Just be honest. The fact of the matter is people that do and enter into various forms of like blatant sin, they're easy to identify. But what about the people that don't get into blatant sin, but they stay plugged into the church? They lead Bible studies. They help out. They might lead worship. They're involved serving. They might even go to college or go to seminary, do things where they advance in the church. But rather than becoming more loving and the world becomes more expanded and bigger and they fall more in love with other people and going out after their enemies, their former enemies, and welcoming them in to know God, to love God, to serve God, they become sort of insular and isolated and myopic and focused upon themselves and judgmental and critical to everybody that's on the outside. What about those people? The reality is this. Whenever faith in God, trust in God, is moved away from, we, either, we always find something to replace it. Because the reality is, at the end of the day, every single one of you here today, all of us, are people of faith. Some people are like, I'm not a person of faith. You are a person of faith. You trust something. There's something in your life right now, every one of you, that has some sort of passion, 
some drive, something that you're clinging on to, something that you're holding on to that is your master passion. It's the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. It's the thing that keeps you going every day. It's the thing that drives you to succeed. It's the thing that keeps you focused. All of us have it. It's different for every one of us. And the Bible's going to basically say that the thing that drives us, that we derive our identity from, that we form our life around, that our life takes balance and focus and identity from that thing, the Bible says that's the thing that we worship. We all believe. It's not an issue of like, do some people have faith and believe? No, the reality is we all believe. The problem is, is we oftentimes believe and trust in the wrong things. Just like the first century Jews and the religious leadership of Israel trusted in a temple that Jesus was saying, I've come to replace. The problem is, is rather than being a faith-filled nation, trusting, loving, serving, honoring God, they became a faithless nation, therefore a fruitless nation, therefore a prayerless nation, even though they were praying, their prayers weren't going anywhere because their prayers were just lip service to God, but there was no affection, no love. And some of us, we know what this is like. I mean, if you've been in a relationship ever, I mean, boyfriend, girlfriend, or if you're married, you know what it's like. I mean, I mean, the reality of, like, we can say the words, I love you, a lot, but unless there's, like, action behind it, they're just futile words. They're fruitless words, right? I mean, you can say, I love you, and then on the other side of your mouth, you're a jerk, you're rude, you put people down, you're not very polite, you don't say, I'm sorry, you never confess sin, you never repent, you're just a jerk. The real issue is you've got to stop buying the lie that you're just going down a path and that you have to at some point come to a realization that somewhere your words and your actions are completely out of sync with each other. It's called repentance. And this is what Jesus was calling his disciples back to. He says, you want to deal? Want to have the power to deal with fruitless trees and prayerless temples? Have faith in God. Trust God. That's what he says to his disciples. So not only does he give them power over lifeless religion, the second thing, he gives them power over the impossible, all right? So this is where we kind of get into the passage where he talks about in verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt his heart, uh, not, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you that whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours, all right, so this is kind of a powerful verse, and again, a lot of ways, let me just straight up honest with you, this is one of those verses that a lot of people love to hijack and kind of misuse and abuse it. Basically, this becomes sort of a blank check to just get God to do, you know, you can manipulate God to do whatever it is that you want, because after all, if you can just believe it with all your heart and all your mind, as much as you want, somehow you confess it with your lips, it will happen to you. But the reality is we've got to take a look at a couple things first and foremost. All right, first of all, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. These are people that love Jesus. These aren't just like random people on the street, you know, doing stuff in complete counter opposition to Jesus. These are actually his followers. Now, the followers of Jesus, they weren't perfect. Peter, James, John, these guys were totally messed up. In a lot of ways, they're just like us. Bottom line is this. They didn't get everything that Jesus was trying to say, but they loved Jesus. They weren't perfect. They didn't fully understand theologically every single thing, every nuanced teaching that Jesus communicated, but they loved Jesus. So Jesus says to these people, his followers, his disciples, anything you ask, my disciples, in my name, I'll give it to you. In other words, Jesus is saying to people that absolutely love his ways, ask him anything you want, I'll give it to you. 
These are people with new hearts, people that love Jesus, people that love things that are in alignment with Jesus' purposes. He says, I'll give them to you. So with that, I want to kind of jump into a couple things. Uh, basically, three words I want to really try to unpack as best as we can. Because again, like I said earlier, we're sort of tapping into a vocabulary that's important for us to understand. Because most of us, I think, like I said, uh, we're not very super familiar with the Old Testament. Maybe to some degree, some larger themes and ideas. But for the most part, what you need to understand with Jesus in his day, his audience, every single thing Jesus said was always somehow linked to the Old Testament. That was his vocabulary. That was his source of everything that he spoke about. I've said this before. It's like when you're building a website or if you've been on a website and you notice that little blue text, we've talked about this before, that's hypertext, hyperlinks. You click it and you know instinctively that the moment you click, that's going to take you to another website because that text just depicts information from another website. So it takes you there and now you've got to read that other website to kind of familiarize yourself with what that text is talking about. That's the way Jesus spoke all the time. So when Jesus said little things, spoke little phrases, it was always hypertext to take his disciples back to another concept or another idea in the Old Testament. And again, like I said, if we are unfamiliar with the vocabulary of Jesus or the pool of information that Jesus is coming from or talking about, that's why we can read passages of Jesus cursing fig trees and being like, that's really weird. Why would he do that? The only reason why we would be confused by that is because we don't understand the metaphors and the idioms of which Jesus spoke from all the time. So with that being said, I want to take a look at three words in this particular passage that talk about Jesus giving power to his disciples over the impossible. So I want to first of all deal with the word mountain because there seems to be a lot of information about this word mountain. So again, I'll read it to you. He says this, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that he... Uh, that what he says will be, come to pass, it will be done for him. So again, this kind of led to a lot of que- questions and speculation. Is Jesus being literal here? You know, is Jesus, and again, this is an important question, because some people think Jesus is being literal, that you can actually go out, speak to a literal mountain, literal rock, and speak to that mountain, and believe in all your heart that the mountain's going to move, and it will move. Now, and the reality is, I, I personally don't believe Jesus is actually being literal. I mean, I don't think Jesus' instruction to us would be like, look, walk out, get the whole church together, talk to San Luis Mountain, tell Madonna Mountain to move, and it will move. Believe, get everybody to believe as best as they can, and it will move. I don't think that's the issue. That's not the point. I don't think the point is this literal nature. Jesus, I believe, is speaking hyperbole. But I think, again, Jesus is using language that's steeped in the Old Testament. So I want to try to understand as best as I can what the word mountain refers to, that Jesus is saying, I'm giving you power to speak to these mountains to move. We need to know what that means. So first of all, I think there's basically two ways that we can look at this. One is sort of a general or generic way of mountains, all right? Generic mountains, all right? Meaning anything that's impossible. Um, moving a mountain, I think we'd all agree, is pretty much impossible, Right? Like, people just don't go out and say to Everest, move, and it gets moved. It's an absolute impossibility. But here's what I think Jesus is saying, is that with man, that is an absolute impossibility. But with God, it's not an impossibility. In other words, God can give you power to do the absolute impossible, to even move a mountain. In other words, the biggest, most radical thing that nobody would ever in a million years think they have the ability or the power to do you can do that. So again, metaphorically speaking, Jesus, I think, is saying, by the power that I'm giving to you, I'm vesting in you, this power 
is so great, it can actually move mountains. The second way in which you can look at this, again, is because I think Jesus is oftentimes drawing from Old Testament vocabulary. Jesus is the more specific way, I think, looking at mountain as the way the word mountain oftentimes is used as metaphors in the Old Testament. I'll give you just one scripture. I'll direct you to a couple other ones. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 3. These are verses that talk about mountains, all right? But the one probably that is one of the most preeminent that Jesus actually quotes from the prophet Daniel several times, or it refers to Daniel several times, and it's actually going to be referring to Daniel uh, later on in chapter 12. So in just a few short um, you know, verses down later, Jesus is actually going to already refer to Daniel. I think perhaps another element or layer which Jesus has in mind is perhaps the more specific way of viewing a mountain. Here's what I mean. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, mountains could be viewed as symbols or metaphors for power, for kingdoms. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 45. Some of you are probably familiar. There's a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He has this dream, crazy dream, wakes up in the middle of the night, freaking out. He's trying to figure out someone to try to help him to interpret it. Taps into the vast wisdom and knowledge of this young guy by the name of Daniel. Daniel comes to him and says, oh, king, I have the ability from God to help you know what your dream's all about. Basically then reiterates what he says the dream is. And in the dream, he basically says, a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of these, these images, these idols, in other words. Images or an idol of bronze, an idol of silver, an idol of gold, an idol of clay, so on and so forth. And this, and this idol, uh, this image was, was crushed by a stone that came from this mountain. And he goes on to say that this mountain will actually fill the entire earth. So, you know, you imagine like Nebuchadnezzar's freaking out. He's like, this is a really freaky dream. I don't know what it means. Daniel basically says, oh, that's easy. What you saw, all these images and pictures are kingdoms, nations, gold, silver, clay. Guess where gold, silver, clay, all that comes from? Mountains. They're derivatives of big mounds of earth. That's where they come out of. And they are kingdoms. But what Daniel goes on to say, the reality is one day there's going to be a mountain and the mountain of God that will come and overcome and subvert all other earthly kingdoms and domains. That this will be the mountain of God, the kingdom of God, the power of God that will subvert all other kingdoms and all other domains. Old Testament passages that refer to one day the mountain of the Lord will fill the entire earth. Uh, I'll give you another final example in the book of Revelation. Uh, John uh, has his image, his picture, and he sees uh, a, a kingdom on seven mountains, seven hills, or seven, king, or seven, seven mountains. And again, the picture is kingdoms, domains um, that have power and authority. So bringing that back into sort of the specific, when Jesus says, say to this mountain, be removed, what's he talking about? I think it's also not only possible he's talking about in the general sense where anything impossible can become possible. But I also think there may be a specific element because where's Jesus standing? He's standing on the Mount of Olives. He's overlooking the temple. What was the temple? The temple was the epitome of all of Israel's strength. It was what defined Israel. It was the center of political, social, economic, religious might for the Jewish nation. It was what defined in its entirety Israel. And Jesus is standing on the mountain. He says, say to this mountain, be removed. Believe it, trust it, pray it, and it will happen. I think if this is interpretation, I think what Jesus is saying is I'm going to give you the power to remove evil, wicked, oppressive forms of religion and government 
and replace it with a new kingdom, my kingdom. I will give you the power to do that. That being said, that's my interpretation, my thought on that. But the second thing I want to take a look at is he uses the phrase prayer. Now, again, prayer is one of those words that I think a lot of ways can get very easily hijacked. And maybe if you're like me, if you've ever been, you know, been around the church or church people for any amount of time, you know that there are certain people in the church, some people that are just simply real, they love Jesus, and they just recognize their own faults and failures. And then you meet, like, super Christian. Have you ever met that person? They're the ones that are, like, always praying. I mean, let me, let me try to define it. There are two types of super Christian. There are super Christians that don't know they're super Christians, all right? They're humble. They're always, like, asking, hey, can I pray for you? And I just, I love you. And they never make you feel bad because they pray all the time. They're just doing it. They just love Jesus. They're serving. They're helping out. They're, they're amazing people. They, they're the type of people you love to be around because they build you up. They strengthen you. And then there's, like, the, uh, the quasi-super Christian, all right? Fake super Christian is what I like to describe them as. They're the ones that are always talking about praying. And they're like, oh, yeah, I woke up at, like, 4 in the morning. And I prayed for you. And, like, while you were still, like, sawing logs, like, I was just, like, reading, like, Jonathan Edwards and John Owen, all these like deep theological writings, and it's too bad that you were still dreaming. I was just like praying for you, and, and you're like, dang, like, I'll never be that like spiritual. You're amazing. Those people, you walk away, and you're like, gosh, why even try? Like, I might as well just throw in the towel now and give up because this guy like wins the award for super spirituality. I'll never arise or ascend to that level. You don't like being around those people because those people always make you feel like trash, all right? So here's the deal. Uh, prayer, oftentimes, the phrase of prayer, the idea of prayer oftentimes gets hijacked by those people. And so what happens, whenever they talk about prayer and you're around them in their presence, you always kind of feel like this big. You're like, ah, oh, man, I, I'm not that good at praying. I don't pray as diligently as you do. I'm not as effective as you are, and I'm not as amazing as you are, and just like... Maybe one of these days, by God's supernatural grace, I will ascend to that level, but not now. And you walk away, and you just sort of give up, and you feel really discouraged. You feel defeated and bummed out because you're like, I can never pray. Might as well just not even pray. And most Christians don't pray. I'll tell you why. What's happened is the idea of prayer has become ultra, super spiritualized. And what I want to try to do is I want to, first of all, just call that lie a lie for what it is, and try as best I can to try to redefine that, okay? Prayer, in its simplest way, I'm going to just use the definition of America's greatest preacher. Um, next slide, uh, just Billy Graham. Here's what he has to say about prayer. It's amazing. It's simple, as Billy Graham is able to just simply put words into simplistic terms. Here's what he says about prayer. Prayer is communication between man and God, a two-way relationship in which man not only talks to God, about, uh, but also listens to him. Prayer is like a child's conversation with his father, I'll quote from Jesus now. Jesus is approached by his disciples. They saw Jesus praying. Apparently, when Jesus prayed, uh, his disciples weren't like, oh my gosh, he's super spiritual. I should never be like him because he's too distant, too difficult to even try to emulate. Jesus obviously was super spiritual. He was the definition of the spiritual. But his disciples saw something about Jesus that rather than running away from him, being repelled by him, they were drawn to him. So they come to Jesus and like, Jesus, tell us about your prayer life. How do we pray? Here's what Jesus says. You want to know how to pray? I'm going to totally demystify it for you. Want to know how to pray? Go to God as if he's your daddy. Prayer just needs to be demystified because I think in a lot of ways, like I said, it's been hijacked and turned into this big mysterious type of thing that we look at and we're like, I can never do it. In its most simplistic form, 
Prayer is just simply going to God as your daddy. He loves you. I've said this before. I have two daughters. I love my daughters. There's nothing that I would not do for my daughters. The only thing that limits me is money, all right? If I had a lot of it, I would give more of it away, all right, to them. I love my daughters. I love doing things with them. One of the things over the past few weeks we've just started doing is, I don't know, there's a place, they serve, I don't know, tea called boba. Maybe you guys have heard of that. I don't know. It's over off California Street. My kids love that. And so, like, we go there. We're like, you know, buy three bobas. It's like 10 bucks. It's like, yeah, it's a little bit pricey. But the reality is, at the end of the day, I'm like, look, 10 bucks is a memory for a very long time in their life. They're going to be like 45 years old and be like, dad took me to boba. Like, to me, I'm like, 10 bucks? Yeah, you know, I'm okay with that. Like, I love hanging out with my kids. If they want boba, I'll take them to go get boba. I love spending time with my kids. I mean, obviously, there's limits. They're like, daddy, buy me a car. I can't buy you a car, you know? Uh, the point of the matter is this, is I, I will do anything for my kids, not because someone's twisting my arm saying, you got to be a good dad, because I take great delight in my kids. I love them. They know I love them. And the reality is, is that this is the picture that Jesus says of who God is. He's like a dad who loves you. You can go to him like a dad who actually cares for you. Some of you believe that. Some of you know that. Some of you will take that truth. It will be pierced to your heart. Some of you will just be like, ah, yeah, whatever. I'll write that truth down. But you won't believe it because you won't do anything about it. But what you need to see is that he is like a dad. He doesn't just simply do things because he has all this power, and therefore he just has to do it because that's what powerful deities do. He does it because he delights to do it because he loves you. He's like a dad. He loves us. He loves his creation. Yes, we're sinful. Yes, we're fallen. But the reality is this. If I, as a dad, love and take great delight in the joy of my kids, and I want them to be blessed by time with me, spent with me, and I'm a sinner. I fail. I let my kids down often. How much more will God, who is not a sinner, who never fails, who never lets his kids down, take great delight in serving and loving caring for his kids. That's what prayer is. The second thing, or the third thing I should say, moving on to the next point, is he says don't doubt. And this is really just simply the idea of have a confidence in your mind, in your heart, as to who God is and what God says he is going to do. Trust him. Trust him. So here's what happens. We oftentimes doubt. The Bible describes doubt as basically, in the book of James, as being like double-minded. We have two ways of seeing things. There's, there's conflict going on inside of us, and there's this conflict. And as, as, we, as we have these conflicting notions and ideas, we, we become indecisive. That's what doubt does, is it causes us to become indecisive. And some of us, we can get over that, and some of us, the reality is we just become paralyzed in indecisiveness. And so he says, don't doubt, just trust God. And that's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus not only gives power to his disciples to have this power over lifeless religion, in other words, fruitless trees and prayerless temples, but then he also gives them this power over the impossible to speak to this mountain, and it will be moved. It's an absolutely amazing power. And then the final thing that we'll take a look at right here um, is really this notion of the way that this power is released. And this is really what I really want to finish up on and really try to give some time to think about. Because this is really where everything comes to a head. Because in verse 25, Jesus says this, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. So I think what Jesus does is he kind of puts this in a, in a negative spin, meaning um, 
forgiveness, or I should say, he puts it in the positive spin, I should say, uh, forgive. And as you forgive, your Heavenly Father will forgive you, and it will open up these plateaus and these, this, this power to be able to do what he's calling you to do, to not be a fruitless tree, to not be a prayerless temple, to be somebody that gives life, that's a life-giving agent, a life-giving person, to bless other people, to love other people, to welcome other people, not repel other people, and not push them away, but to welcome them into God, to be an agent, to be like Paul describes, an ambassador of God, repping God, representing God. The flip side of this is, and I'll put it into sort of the negative term, that if you harbor bitterness in your heart, if you have vengeance in your heart, which is the opposite of forgiveness, you won't be a fruitful tree, and you won't be a prayerful temple. You'll be a fruitless tree and a prayerless temple. You can't be. Because here's what Jesus is saying. The way to this power is by identifying what stops the power. But the way to this power is by receiving what frees this power. And he says, forgiveness. Now, there's two things I want to really touch on real fast. One is just the practical element of this. Now, think about it this way. If, if you're going to give somebody something of great power, you want to make sure that they can wield that power properly, right? I mean, if you're you know, going to shoot a gun or do something that might potentially cause harm, um, you want to make sure that they know how to use this thing, and they're not going to use it in some sort of a devious type of a way. Oftentimes, there's this mistaken notion that power is bad, and oftentimes it comes from that phrase, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And the reality is that that's totally true when applied to sinful people. But power is not corrupt. Power is not evil. Power is. That's all it is. In other words, the reason why I can say that is because God is all power. God's not corrupt. God doesn't use power in a corrupting fashion. In fact, quite the opposite. God uses power in a way of redemption. God uses power in a way to bring fruit, to bring life. So power is very important. But who power is given to is equally important because if power is given to somebody that doesn't know how to handle it or has an ax to grind or is bearing a grudge or in the context of the passage is angry and bitter and vindictive and just... Is, is, is hateful and has all these past unreconciled relationships, Jesus says they won't know how to use power, so I will not give them power. They will be like a barren tree. They will be like a prayerless temple because they'll misuse the power. They'll abuse the power. The second thing is really a simple, honest look at this whole phrase because Again, I want you to listen to it again. Verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive if, any, if you have anything against anyone. Now, some of you might be like, yeah, what's up? It's big, what's the big deal? Like, Jesus, just forgive. You know, that's what we do. We just forgive. We just move on. Forgiveness. You know, have you ever met someone who like, comes in your life, maybe something's happened to you, and you're like dealing with it, and they're just like, just forgive them, all right? And you're like, shut up. <laughs> like, you don't even understand the pain I'm in. And the reality is, is for us to be given a command to forgive. At best, is confusing. At worst, is totally frustrating. The words of Jesus, forgive, listen to them. These aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. Jesus looking you in the eye 
And unless you have actually dealt with the reality of what Jesus is saying here, you haven't begun to deal with the real Jesus. Because this Jesus comes to you and says, everything I'm about to give you, the power that, to be fruitful, the power to shake mountains, the power to do great, powerful things, everything is completely hitched and connected to your understanding to be able to forgive. And until you're ready to deal with this, you haven't begun to deal with Jesus. But the reality, if you're really honest with this, this is really frustrating. Because what Jesus is asking some of us, we look at, is absolutely impossible. It's like someone coming to us. I mean, the reality is some of us can be like, oh, yeah, I can forgive that guy. Yeah, he, like, ripped me off for 25 bucks or he stole some cookies from my house. Yeah, it's all cool. I forgave him. It's all good. But the reality is what happens when something really bad happens to your life? A divorce. Or you're sexually or physically abused as a child. Or your boyfriend repeatedly keeps having sex with you, saying he's sorry, won't commit to marrying you, keeps doing that, taking advantage of you, and you're just, you're bitter. You're hurt because he won't commit to you. Or you're bitter or you're hurt because of difficulties and circumstances that have happened in your life. You lost a child. Difficult things have taken place in your life that were completely outside of your control. You find yourself in these scenarios where someone's to blame and the command to forgive it's frustrating. And you're like, how can I do that? It's like someone coming to you and saying, before we go forward, you've got to pay up a million dollars. And you can't go past go until you pay up a million dollars. You're like, I can't do this. I'll have to drop out then. But the command to pay up a million dollars is a complete impossibility unless someone came to you the night before and unbeknownst to you deposited $5 million in your bank account, now it becomes a possibility. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, unless you're ready to forgive, you're not ready to receive this power. But the real issue is how does this happen? And what Mark's going to tell us by the end, and I'm going to finish with this thought, because the word forgiveness is really kind of an interesting word. It literally means to leave or to pull away from. Matthew chapter 4, verse 20 uh, is a verse that just simply says this. Immediately they left their nets and they followed Jesus. Uh, it's the picture of uh, Jesus' disciples walking away from their nets. It's literally the word leave is the word forgive that we translate here. Uh, another way in which you can use this word forgive is translated as the word divorce. Now think about it. An actual physical divorce between a marriage is when uh, a person married to another person says, I need to separate myself from the offender, the person, and their offense. That's what a divorce is. And sometimes, in some cases, divorces need to happen because the offender refuses to separate themselves from their offense. They hold on to their offense. They hold on to their sin. Rather than repenting from their sin, they continue to hold on to their sin, and at some point that person needs to, for their own safety, their own life, needs to pull away and divorce, pull away from that. But a divorce, in that sense, is pulling away from a person, casting off a person and casting off their offense. What forgiveness is, is casting off an offense without casting off the person. And what Jesus is saying here is cast off the offense but not cast off the person. Now, for some people, justice needs to happen. Here's what I mean. If something illegal takes place, rape happens, sexual abuse happens, 
Sometimes people may need to be put in jail. Sometimes some people may need to have some form of sentencing against them to them because they have violated the law and the law needs to be exacted against them. But here's what forgiveness is. I'm just trying my best to define it for you. Forgiveness is being able to cast off the offense without casting off the person. And what Mark's going to tell us is that by the time you get to the end of the story of Jesus, what you're going to see is Jesus on the cross you're going to see the one who has all power, who has all power, all power to be fruitful, all power to move mountains. This one who has all power will restrain that power in order to be restrained. On the cross, what you'll see is that the fruitful tree, the only one who has any right to claim himself as being altogether fruitful and lovely and life-giving, you'll see that fruitful tree wither and die. On the cross, you'll see the only one that ever has any right to pray, the praying temple, the true praying temple, who always has the Father hear and respond and listen to him. But on the cross, you see the only praying temple pray. And for the first time, silence. The Father doesn't answer. And on the cross, you see what little power that Jesus has. He uses that power while they're driving nails into his hands, he says, Father, forgive them. All forgiveness, always, on every level, is some form of, of absorbing a debt. It's always bloody. And on the cross, Jesus absorbed our offense. That's what he did. And on the cross, what we see is Jesus as an agent of God, creating a way to be able to cast off the offense without casting off the offender. To the degree that you see that this is what Jesus did for you, not because he had to, because he loves you. That will melt your heart, and that melting of your heart will begin to rewire, reconstruct, reconfigure, rebuild your heart. And that reconstructing and that rebuilding of your heart will be what gives you the power to actually be a fruitful tree, to be a praying temple, to be one who can forgive other people. That's the only power, because at the end of the day, if all you do is hear Jesus say, forgive, and you're like, all right, whatever, I'll do it, and you think it's just a glib, simple act, you don't get the gospel, or you're not really being honest. To hear the phrase forgive should be the most perplexing, confusing frustrating phrase you've ever heard come out of Jesus' mouth. And if it's not, you haven't begun to understand it. But to the degree that you see that Jesus has forgiven you by creating a way to cast off your offense, by carrying your offense, without casting you off, because he loves you, that will change you. That will give you the power to be the person that can do powerful things. On the cross, Right when Jesus died, the one who is all-loving, the one who is all-powerful, Matthew tells us that there was a great earthquake and the earth broke in two. Literally, a mountain was moved. <laughs> a mountain was moved so that we who are sinners can be redeemed and changed and therefore go out and change and redeem, transform others that are broken. I'm going to finish by praying. I know that stuff that we covered might be gnarly and heavy. Some of you guys might 
feel like you need to be prayed for, and we want to pray for you. We're going to have Scott come up. We're going to finish. If you have kids and you need to go pick up your kids, please feel free to go pick up your kids. But what I want to do is I'm going to finish up. We're going to sing. And if there's people here that need to be prayed for, we'll have some people over off on the side over here, and we'll be happy to pray for you. Some of our community group leaders, some of our helpers and whatnot will be there. So if you would like to be there to pray, we'd need some people to be able to be there to pray. Uh, we're going to sing. We'll partake of communion. We have communion in the back, those little three areas back there. Feel free to remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. I'm going to pray. We'll sing, and we'll finish. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We want to worship you now. We want to give to you praise and honor that's due to your name. And we want to just truly and frankly and honestly recognize that the command to forgive is is probably the most frustrating command we could ever hear. But thank you, Jesus, that you don't give us commands without also empowering us to be able to do that. And the way that you empower us to be able to do that is you show us how great our offense was before you and how much you paid for us so that you can rescue us and save us. So God, I pray right now that you, as we sing to you, as we worship you, as we respond to you, that you would help us to not just merely give lip service, but that our hearts would be truly impacted and affected by the power of the gospel. 